We're continuing looking at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and over these six weeks we are looking at chapters 13 through 39, which really gets to the big question that we've said every week, do we trust in God or do we trust in man? Do we trust in God or in man? And Isaiah spends so long on this because so often if we are asked that question, we go, well, yeah, I trust in God, of course. And then our actions prove otherwise. And so what we have been doing is last week we looked at how we trust God's big picture planned for the world. That God is going to come and judge the world and save his people. And we thought so much about the big picture. But today we are thinking about big problems. Many people who experience big problems in their lives trust in God more. Because of those problems. That problem may be marital strife. It may be an addiction. It may be cancer. It may be the death of a loved one. These big problems can often lead to greater trust and dependence on God. But not always. You see, sometimes when we face a big problem, we turn up our noses at the idea of simply trusting in God to get us through We need a more practical, measurable plan by which we can get to the correct outcome. And that is what Isaiah is addressing in chapters 28 through 33. And specifically, since we're not reading all six chapters, I know you're sad. In just chapter 28, he focuses on that idea. What was going on for Isaiah and God's people is that the big, bad Assyrian Empire, the strongest nation of the day, was threatening the people of Judah, God's tiny nation. And the idea of simply trusting in God in the face of this impending invasion, people thought that was absurd. It was childish, in fact. And so the leaders of Judah decided that they needed to do something, and they did do something. They made an alliance with the nation of Egypt, their old enemy. Now, to Isaiah's mind, that was um, stupid. Obviously stupid. So stupid, a child would be able to be like, "That's, that's stupid. And so here... Isaiah is pointing them to the foolishness of not trusting in God and urging them to have that childlike trust in the Lord. So if you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles. We're going to be in Isaiah 28. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 29. That's page 699 in the Pew Bibles. For those of you who brought your own Bibles, Isaiah is roughly in the middle before Jeremiah and after the Psalms. Let us pray as we come to the Word of God. Oh Lord, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself through your word. And so give us ears to hear. Give us hearts and minds that understand, O oh God, as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 28, beginning in verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom He has said, This is rest. 
Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and, the, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows? and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border. For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Amen. As we come to our word today, in the word of God, I want us to be thinking about a big question that dealt with what Jed talked about in the children's message, is simple, childlike faith enough to sustain us through life's biggest problems? 
is that simple faith. And by simple faith, I do not mean a naive faith, an irrational faith, as if simple means dumb. I mean trusting God and what He has said in His Word. So simple means basic or pure. Is that simple faith enough to sustain us even in life's biggest problems? Now that's a yes or no question and seeing as how we're, we're in church, hearing from the Word of God, the answer is yes. But Isaiah gets it. Why? Why is the answer yes? Isaiah shows us the foolishness of scoffing at simple faith, and then he illuminates for us the wisdom of simple faith. So in the text today, Isaiah first describes the difficulty of convincing the leaders of Judah to trust in God. They scoff at the notion that faith in God will solve their military and their political problems. They have big, complex problems, and trusting in God sounds nice, but they need to do something to solve the problem. And so Isaiah records the mockery of these leaders. He writes it in verse 9, "...to whom will he, that is Isaiah, teach knowledge?" To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast, and they describe it as precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The leaders look at this prophet and his message of simple faith, and they tell him, go teach the kids class. They can handle that simple instruction. We have big boy problems, and we need big boy solutions to those problems. They see Isaiah and all he is doing is teaching basic truths as if he were teaching children. It reminds me a little bit of helping with our son's math homework. Many parents and grandparents in recent years have developed a case of CCC or Common Core Confusion. You look at your child's homework paper and you read the, the problem which says, show me three ways that you can take 10 and 5 and get 15. Well, you would take 10 and 5, and then you get 15, right? And that feeling of, well, that's the answer, let's move on, we need something more advanced than this, is what the leaders of Judah were feeling. Yes, trust in God. But Assyria is invading. So what else? But Isaiah doesn't want to move on to what else. Because like our children's math homework, he wants to make sure we fully understand and embrace the concept. And it is clear from Isaiah's words that Judah's leaders did not understand the concept. He says in verse 12, they would not hear. He says in verse 14, hear the word, you scoffers who rule the people of Jerusalem. The leaders of Judah wanted something more than simple faith. And so they made a political alliance with Egypt. We read about this in the surrounding chapters, especially chapter 30. Now the very idea of saying, you know what, guys, we're in trouble. Let's trust. You remember those bad guys from 500 years ago who enslaved us for 400 years? We're going to trust them. 
That probably would have been a difficult sell to the people. But as any good leaders, they have a PR team. And they probably could have put out an excellent press release explaining how necessary this covenant with Egypt was and how they made this alliance after much prayer and discussion. And they could even say that God was opening the door for them to make this alliance with Egypt. But Isaiah could see through all of that posturing and politicking. And so he takes that press release and he translates it into real talk to what these faithless leaders were really doing. In verse 15, we get Isaiah's honest translation. We have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, that is the underworld, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip, that is Assyria, passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood we have taken shelter. He doesn't think too highly of this. This alliance with Egypt, he says, is a covenant with death because it will only lead to the downfall of God's people, taking them away from God. Instead of trusting in their faithful God, they are relying on other nations who have no reason to care for their good. They are trusting a lying nation to be honest to them. And Isaiah is like, does anyone else see how dumb this is? Kids could, but you, wise leaders, cannot. And so Isaiah warns later in the chapter that the waters of Assyria will sweep through and destroy them. Their covenant with Egypt will be annulled. It will not save them as they desire. And he uses this powerful image in verse 20 of a bed. He says of this covenant with Egypt, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. The leaders of Judah made this alliance with Egypt so they could rest easy. So they could feel like, at least when Assyria comes, we'll have Egypt on our side. But that rest, Isaiah says, is like trying to sleep in a bed that is too short for you. And your legs are just hanging off the edge and it's uncomfortable and you're tossing and turning. And your covering is this really narrow blanket that you can't get all the way around your body. And so on the cold night, you're just covering different parts, but you can't cover your whole body. It won't give you the needed warmth you need or the needed rest you desire. Isaiah tells them that true rest is found only through trusting in God. He points to that rest in verse 12, saying, This is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Repose is an old word we don't use a whole lot. It is essentially resting peacefully or tranquil, calm. Isaiah is saying that this very word about simple faith that you rejected as childish is the source of rest. It is like relaxing on a comfortable bed. One of those pillow top beds, you know? With nice warm blankets on top of you and you can have a good night's sleep because by trusting in God, you can rest easy knowing that my big problem is in the hands of the God of the universe. And what better hands to have my problem in? Isaiah describes how God can help us later in verse 16, giving us something better than a covenant of death. He writes, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, 
I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. He uses this construction imagery to highlight that the Lord is trustworthy, that just as a building needs a stable foundation, so also we need something stable to trust in, to rest on when we face difficulty in life. And Isaiah wants them to know it's not Egypt. Don't trust in man and make an alliance with others. Trust in the stone God has laid. Here in Isaiah, we are told this stone is laid in Zion. Zion was the name for essentially the ideal city of God. It's what Jerusalem was supposed to be, where God ruled over his faithful people. And so that helps us identify this stone as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Promises that we know find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. We are told that the stone is tested and sure. That all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see the testing of God again and again. How he comes through for his people. And this stone is precious. It is precious because it is hard to find. In the ancient world, you couldn't just make stones any shape you want like we can do today with our different methods. You had to go out and be like, ah, is this going to... No, that's not going to work. Next stone, how about this one? Oh, it's going to take some work. It's like finding the perfect stone to be your foundation. No other people in the ancient world had something like It should have been precious to God's people that they were different because they could trust in God. Being different can be hard. When we live with simple faith, we're going to show ourselves as different from the world because we think God actually has promised good to us. It will make us seem backwards from the world. Isaiah conveys this in verse 21. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. To work his work. Alien is his work. Our Old Testament reading described how King David was under threat from the Philistine army. And under threat, he did not hastily figure out what to do. He trusted in God and sought the Lord first. As a result, God granted him victory at Mount Perizim. We read just a few verses later that the Philistines threaten him again, this time in a valley near Gibeon. And David seeks the Lord again. And wouldn't you know, God came through again and gave him victory. It's in this way that we start to see that God is strange. That he is foreign in the eyes of the world. It didn't matter who had the stronger army, who had the better positioning. What was happening was that one military force had literally the creator of all things on their side helping them, and the other guys didn't. That's wild. And yet that's what the Bible says again and again. That the God of the universe has promised good to his people, and his people should trust him. As crazy as that sounds, especially if the Assyrian Empire is marching towards you, that truth is quite simple. It is simple like the faith 
of a child, as we saw in the New Testament reading. Jesus showed his disciples that children are far more capable of simple trust because they're used to being dependent upon adults, especially adults who have promised to care for them no matter what. And so, yes, the children cry and keep crying and cry some more, knowing eventually we will break them and they will come because they love us. And we do, even if it's not on our face when they come in. But they cry out and know I can trust in them. They love me. That's the kind of faith we need as children of God. We need that kind of faith that always trusts in God knowing He is good to us. But is that how we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as made for simple childlike faith in God? Because if the leaders of Judah didn't see themselves that way. It's possible we may not either. They heard from the prophet Isaiah, trust in God, and they scoffed at it, turning up their nose, thinking, yes, trust in God. I got to fix this, okay? I I don't have time to sit around trusting in God. Trusting in God was not sufficient for their problems. Have we ever felt that way? That trust in God didn't feel sufficient. We may say, I believe in God. We may even come and worship Him. But do we trust God and His promises in His Word when we face our own big problems? See, it's hard to do that. One, because we're sinful. And two, because we don't have the kind of promises in the Word that seem to directly address our big problems. We desire promises in God's Word that aren't written in there because those would be really easy to trust in our problems. God's promises do not include the following things. Your life will be free from suffering and pain. It's not in here. Sorry. You will find lifelong happiness with your spouse. Also not in there. Your children will joyfully listen to you. Not in there. You will have a fulfilling job that pays you well until you're ready to retire. No. You will enjoy religious freedom in a democratic nation. No. You will be liked by everyone who meets you. No. Those are not promises we find in God's Word. We cannot open up our Bibles and find a verse that says, Eric, I will save you from this cancer. Eric, I will provide for you in your poverty Eric, I will save you from these marital difficulties that you are in. We can't find that in there, at least in the way we want it to be phrased. But it doesn't mean we lack promises. The promises that God gives to us are at a more foundational level. You could even say they're down at the cornerstone of our faith. The New Testament uses this language of cornerstone on a number of occasions to describe this guy Jesus. That in Jesus Christ, we find true rest because in Him we have salvation. Salvation not from invading armies that threaten to conquer us or from an illness invading our body threatening to kill us. Our salvation is from the enemies of sin and from death. And in Christ, we find rest because He has done the very strange work of suffering the punishment for our sins taking upon Himself the holy wrath of God against us and rising again from the dead 
to give us eternal life as a gift. Yes, I can't deny that it would be nice if God had in the Bible, I promise to heal every disease you have. I promise to reconcile every broken relationship right away. I promise to make any and every problem go away the instant you ask as if I were a genie. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is given us the big boy solution to the biggest problems we have in life. And God wants us to see that as the foundation, as the cornerstone, and to find rest in it. To let our weary souls, in whatever problems we're facing, find rest that we have a God who went down to the deepest. Not just to what we want Him to fix, but what we need Him to fix. And He has saved us. And He says, rest there. When we have that foundational salvation, we can approach the big problems in life without haste, knowing that our eternity with God is secure, knowing that God is ultimately for us. This does not mean this, that rest means we are asleep through all of life, letting the big problems hit us as we do nothing other than try to rest. We are not simply supposed to let go and let God and do nothing. Simple faith is an active faith. We can take from David. David did not tell his army, hey guys, we're going to trust in God. Just throw your swords over there. You can take your armor off. We're going to categorize it over there. We're just going to sit. We're going to pray. And God is going to save us from that mean army that did not put down their armor or their swords. Got it? Cool. Let's let go and let God, guys. That's not what happened. Instead, Isaiah compares simple faith to a farmer who understands how to grow crops. This farmer knows you plow the ground and you plant the seeds according to how they're supposed to be planted. And you wait for them to grow and then you harvest them like you're supposed to harvest them. Isaiah says this is wisdom from God. It's how God created plants to grow. If we can understand that those simple principles work in farming life, why don't we look to the word simple principles for spiritual life? When it says, well, you just trust in God and follow what He tells you to do in His Word. In this way, we can approach our, the big problems in our lives with an active, simple faith. We do not simply trust in God, but that trust in God is lived out by looking to His Word How am I supposed to live trusting in you? For the word sets up on top of our foundation the lines and plumb lines of building, of justice and righteousness. It shows us the way to live, to build upon this foundation. So whether we are facing financial difficulty, a cancer diagnosis, the grief of losing a loved one, a broken relationship with a dear friend, we trust in God knowing He is for us. And we go to His Word not for the exact answer to fix this specific problem, but for how to live knowing that He is for us. That may be strange to the world that runs around hastily trying to solve every problem, but our God is strange. He has already promised us eternity and has told us to fix our eyes there and trust in Him every day in good times and in big problems. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us simple faith. 
Not simple faith that is not interested in studying your word. We do want to study your word. It's not simple in that way. Not simple faith that ignores the truth around us. No. Simple faith that knows that just like a baby cries out for his parents, so we can cry out for you, O Father. And you're good to us. Let us simply trust the word that you have given to us and know that it is true. It is for our good. And help us to live lives of simple, active faith in whatever problems we face. In Jesus' name, amen.